0: Uh, so, what we're gonna do is we're gonna wrap up this series, uh, this week, and then Glenn's gonna speak, and then for two weeks, I'm gonna do, or three weeks, I'm gonna do something just about, uh, we're gonna, I'm not sure fully what the title is, but it's something about generosity, how to live a more generous life. Uh, we'll talk about money, so don't be scared. Uh, and then we'll walk into Christmas. And then in January, I'll bring back a couple more of these messages in this series, just so that we can kind of have a break. I, I know this has been tough. It's been tough for me. Uh, I've enjoyed it, but it's something that you know, usually in your, your your sermon files, you go, oh, okay, we've preached that a bunch of times. We've preached that a bunch of times. We haven't preached this a bunch of times. It's something we don't really talk about in church often. All right, you ready? So for a minute, I don't want you to be humble, okay? So push humility to the side. I want you to be truthful. Remember, we're in a church, so you got to be truthful, okay? How many of you today would say that you're probably smarter than the average person. Okay, I want you to raise your hands. Remember, we're in the church. Raise your hands. Here, So none of you. I don't believe any of it. You won't say it because you're in the church. But most of us think it. Most of us think we're a better driver than most people. Most of us think that we're less sinful than most people. Now, I don't want to speak for you. I'm going to speak for me. I know that I'm way above average. I mean, it's hard being right all the time because we live in a world where there's so many people that aren't so smart. You know what I'm talking about. Let's let's just be honest. If you want to know what to believe about anything, I'm here to tell you what you should believe in because I'm incredibly right. If you want to know about theology, I can tell you what to believe about the end times, about spiritual gifts, about women in ministry. Those of you who disagree with me, I can show you why you're wrong. I can show you what the right approach is to the vaccine, to capitalism, to abortion, to sexual and gender issues, and anything else you want, to write, you want to know. I want to just tell you, don't just sit back and bask in my glory this morning and my brilliance, because I know it's exhausting being right all the time. Okay, I'm being sarcastic. Today we're going to look in at Luke 18. Luke 18. And if you have your Bibles, I want you to to turn to Luke 18. Just to kind of say it bluntly. You know what? They're a little bit like the people that we find ourselves walking with today. These people in Luke 18 are right about everything. Their goal above everything was to be right. We know the way. We behave the right way. We're right. They thought they were smarter. They thought they were better. They thought they were more holy than anyone else. So Jesus tells this parable to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. And this is what it says in Luke chapter 18, verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable, this story. To men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and one was a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I'm not like robbers. I'm not like evildoers. I'm not like those adulterers. I'm not even like this tax collector standing beside me. I fast twice a day, uh, twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get but the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who credit themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. One was a Pharisee. The other, a tax collector. Now, if you don't know about a Pharisee, a Pharisee was very outwardly righteous. They would dress the part. They would pray loud prayers out in public. They followed 613 rules or laws. They were outwardly religious. The tax collector, though, was outwardly despised because of his outward sinfulness. What's so interesting to me about this text is that the Pharisee saw himself as right and the tax collector as wrong. To Jesus, it wasn't just about right and wrong. It was about pride and humility. Because guess what? Proud people don't love very well. So why don't you look at the person next to you and say this. Are you a tax collector or are you a Pharisee? Just do it. Just take a second. All right. All right. We we live you and I live in a complicated time. It's tense out there. You know, we've been talking for several weeks and we realize that there's so much tension and there's so many people that think they're right. That they're completely convinced on opposite sides of righteous of right what rightness is. Unfortunately, me included, as Christians, if we're not careful. It's easy for us to slip into our own rightness, into our own spiritual pride, just like the Pharisee. In fact, I would say respectfully that with all good intentions, sometimes those who are followers of Jesus, we tend to think that part of our job as Christians is to be right. We're supposed to be right. We preach the truth because we preach the truth. We're right, which is partially true. But because we're right, sometimes we get offended by those who are wrong. And we can find ourselves being offended by anything they do what we don't think is right. You know, we're offended by what they post or how they vote, or what they believe, or how they behave. We live offended long enough that an offense starts to settle into our hearts. The offense simmers and it grows. And it grows from an offense to contempt. And instead of hating what someone does, if we're not careful, we start to hate who they are which is never a good place for us as Christians. We're Christians. So we're right. We're guardians of the truth. We are truth matters people. But if we're not careful, since we're guardians of the truth, we may be offended by those who do wrong. And then we suddenly start to think that it's our job to assess people. And not judge them. See, I believe that I have the authority as a Christian to assess where people are. If someone asks me what I think of someone, I'll assess them. He's an okay guy, but maybe he's way too much into himself. Or she's great at what she does, but man, she lets her kids run wild. It's our job to assess because we're right. We're right about theology. We're right about churches. We can become, uh, we can become with no real theological background or training. We can be armed with enough truth to assess churches everywhere and anywhere. We know which ones are good and we know which churches are bad. And because we're right, we tell everyone that that church is too shallow or that one's too boring or my church is right. I mean, my church doesn't teach that feel good soft message, but we preach the unadulterated word of God, that exe-ge- exegetical verse by verse teaching, just like Jesus didn't do. Ooh, did I say that? We push others off instead of being perhaps what God called us to be. We're right. Our way of doing is right. Anyone who else, anyone else who doesn't do it our way has to be wrong. Friends, look back at that passage in Luke. The Pharisee was right, and he knew it. So he tells everyone who he is and looks down on those who are wrong. And sometimes without meaning to, we can actually do the same thing because I don't know about you, but I had the right approach to COVID. I had the real sources. I've done the research. I'm right. I know how people should spend their money, and you do too. Boy, if I had money, I wouldn't have spent it like that. That's not, that's not how I spend money. I tell them what Bible version to read. I'll tell them how to dress and Tell her why she shouldn't use spray tan because she looks orange. Thank God you're still listening. We tend to think that we're the best assessors, the best judges. We're the most right. But friends, the truth is every one of us is a sinner. We're all sinful. The Bible actually says that we're wicked, we're easily deceived. And as much as we may think that we're right about so much, we're often very wrong. Even if we are right, our approach may be wrong, which discounts our rightness. Maybe if you're really right... What if you're more right than others, but what if you're right and you're not loving? What if there are Christians who are right, but they're rude? What if there's Christians that are right, but they're a jerk, and all they're doing is simply making a point, point? and they're not making a difference? Friends, Jesus wasn't just concerned about right and wrong. He was also concerned about pride and humility. The tone matters so much. The approach matters so much. I'm we'll raise my hand. I'm entering sarcasm mode here. Okay, get ready. Let me tell you a little bit about myself. And then I'm going to ask you if you like me and if you want to follow Jesus more faithfully because of how amazing I am. I need to warn you again, I'm pretty amazing. Michelle and I tithe over 10% of our income. We don't watch mature shows on TV because we don't want to let that filth into our minds. That's how holy we are. I don't drink anything beyond Diet Coke. My family looks and acts good. So I'd ask you, do you like me? Do you want to follow Jesus because of how holy I am? See, we have to understand that People aren't drawn to Christ by our moral superiority. They're not drawn to Christ by how right we are. Just because we're right doesn't mean we're making a difference. Does that offend you? You can get mad at me and judge me all you want. You can assess me. But I'll tell you right now, I am not perfect. Jesus, He's the only one who's perfect. He's sinless. And what's fascinating about Jesus is even though he was without sin, he drew sinful people to himself. Though he was perfect in every way, those who were imperfect, those who were full of darkness, those who had secrets, those who were sinful, they felt drawn to him. Let me give you four examples from Jesus' life. The very first one, Jesus went to parties where guess who flocked to him? Sinners. Sinners enjoyed his company and loved being with him. Let me give you a second one. There was a prostitute so moved by the love and the grace and the glory of Jesus that she knelt down at his feet to worship him by pouring very expensive oil and perfume upon him. How about this one? There was a tax collector hated and despised by by men who would have stolen from his own to give the money to the Roman government who would then use the their money to go and kill and punish their own. Jesus came over to that guy's house for dinner. There was the woman who couldn't seem to hold a relationship together. You know, the woman in John 4, Jesus spent time loving her and offering her what she was looking for, a living water that would fill that empty void inside of her he was perfect he was without sin and people were drawn to him why do you think that the broken sinful people wanted to be with jesus friends i believe the answer is simply this that jesus didn't make them feel wrong jesus made them feel loved Before we get to the main point in John chapter 13, you can start to flip there if you have your Bibles. I actually want you to embrace the context of what was going on when Jesus talked about how we should love one another. In John chapter 13, verse 1, Jesus said this. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the very end. Jesus knows that the clock is ticking. Scripture says this, and I love that verse, having loved his own who were in this world. Man, I love that. He loved them till the end. Well, how did he do that? They're sitting at a table or they're sitting on the ground. They're probably kneeling, having a very intimate supper. Their last meal together, they're eating and Jesus gets up and shocks everyone there. I want you this afternoon to actually read John 13. And we see this story unfolding. He takes off his outer robes and puts on a slave's apron a servant's apron. He kneels down to the disciples and does something that shocks them. He starts to wash their feet. Something only a slave would do, and he loves them in the most humble serving way. The disciples, of course, are shaken. They're stunned. They're rattled. He goes back to eating, and he says this, one of you will betray me. Can you imagine being in that room and Judas realizes it's him and Jesus says, what you must do, please do quickly. Judas, Judas, sorry, leaves the others and goes off to betray Jesus. This is the context when I, when he says what I'm about to read to you is his last meal with his best friends. He knows the suffering that's about to come. Look back at your Bibles, John 13, verse 33. My children, my children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me just as I told the Jews, so I will tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus, the most loving is serving them with the most sacrificial, humble act to wash dirt from their feet. And while he's betrayed, what does he say to these friends? My children. The, the Greek word, uh, to translate is, as my children is the only time Jesus actually used this word. It's the word technia. And what it means is this relational term, this intimate friendship, deep relationship. What I like about this is every other time, Jesus is the man. He's a friend. All of a sudden in John 13, he goes from the man, the friend, to God. God the Father in the presence of the Son. And suddenly the term changes to My children. His tone is different. He says, I'll only be with you a little bit longer. I'm about to give my life. You'll look for me just as I told the Jews. So I tell you now where I'm going. You just can't come. And then he says this in verse 35. A new command I give to you. The word in Greek for new means fresh. It means not worn out, not heard before. And in this context, when he says it, when he says that he loves them to the end, I want you to feel the power of those words in the context of knowing he's going to give us his life. And he's just washed their feet and he just knows that he's going to be be betrayed. How will they know if they love Jesus? If we love Jesus? How will they know if we follow him? How will they know if we are His disciples? Friends, they won't know we're His disciples by what we're against. They won't know we're His disciples by how we vote or what we post or how right we are. They'll know that we belong to Jesus by the way that we love them. So why do we often not love others the way Jesus loved us? This week, what I wrestled with is, I think the answer in my life, I'm not going to push it on you, is I'm too busy being right. I'm too busy being concerned with what's right and wrong. See, Jesus was concerned with right and wrong, but he was also concerned with pride and humility. Because when we start with the prideful stance that I'm right there's this negative cycle that takes place. It's going to come on the screen. That's what happens in our hearts and our minds. When I'm right, this is the chart that kind of rolls through my mind. Hold on to that chart for a second. See, if my posture is that I'm right... I have the truth. I'm always right. The first thing that we always feel is morally superior. Because we're right and the others are wrong because I'm morally superior. And it's easy for me to become judgmental of those who aren't right, those who are different, those who are wrong. Because I'm morally superior, I become judgmental. And then I become angered and offended, which is the way that most of us live today that's the opposite of jesus think about this friends jesus was the most right and the least judgmental person who ever lived he was perfect he was right yet he was the least judgmental in fact we talked a couple weeks ago about the beautiful story of that woman who was caught in adultery Let's name those players in the story. There were the Pharisees who were technically right. And there was the woman who was completely wrong. She had sinned along with another man that's not mentioned, but we'll leave him out of this. For some reason, we don't know why. The Pharisees were right. Right. The woman was wrong. And so Jesus said this, if you never ever sinned to the Pharisees, you have the right to judge her. You can throw the first stone, but if you have sinned, you have no right to judge her. So think about it. Jesus had not sinned. He was the only one in the story who had not sinned. So Jesus had the right to judge her, but He didn't. What did Jesus do? He... Wrote something in the sand and the men started to walk away. We don't know why, but tradition tells us perhaps he was writing down their sins, which I think is funny. It's almost like Jesus is asking them to try and go in a different direction with this woman. Why don't you think of something else to do? Now remember, Jesus never sinned. The men left one by one, and Jesus looked at the woman who was wrong. To the woman who had sinned, he said, where are those who have condemned you? And the woman responds, they're not here. And so Jesus looks at her and he says, neither do I condemn you. Go on your way. Friends, here's the truth. Jesus said this, Go on your way and sin no more. See, it was truth overwhelmed with love. How do you think that woman felt? She was wrong. And yet He treated her that way. What do you think she felt? She felt valued. She felt seen. She felt loved in spite of her sin because... His heart was different. Now do not walk out of here not hearing this. Jesus is concerned with right and wrong. But he's also concerned with pride and humility. If we start with the idea that I'm right, we feel morally superior. Remember back to the chart. We feel judgmental. We feel easily angered. We feel offended. And instead of humility... If we start with the idea that I'm forgiven, then we always start with gratitude. And out of that gratitude, it always leads us to more accepting of those who may be wrong or may be different. And because we're more accepting, we're overflowing with love. We continue with a posture of forgiveness and gratitude and love and grace. And instead of being right and ineffective... We're humble. We can be loving. We still share the truth, but we do it in an effective way because we don't change people by judging them. We change them by loving them. Here's the next one. I'm forgiven. It's opposite. That I'm overflowing with love. I feel this profound gratitude. I become more accepting. There's always someone who is in an airport or in an airplane who asks this week i was in vancouver on on sunday and monday and they always say this what do you do for a living and i say well i'm a pastor or and their countenance always changes they look scared when i say i'm a pastor and they quickly say this i'm not religious And then they say, I don't know how to talk to a pastor. And the conversation will keep going until they say a bad word. The moment they say it, their countenance changes once again. They put their hands up and they say, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm such a bad person, I'm so sorry. And it's not like that was an appropriate or respectful apology. Basically, what they're saying is, I'm guilty. I feel a great amount of shame. And this shame is welling up from somewhere deep inside of me. And as I wrestle through that, I I think this. Who in the world rejected them? Who pushed them away from Jesus? Who held them to a standard that they never agreed to? So they said the D word. I've said a lot of worse things in my life. I'm not going to judge you for that. I want you to know Jesus has forgiven me of so much. And God loves you exactly as you are. And to be honest, I think you're pretty cool. See, we rarely help someone by judging their sins but we might help them by loving them and pointing them to the one who forgives their sins. It was the Apostle Paul who said this in 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but don't have love, I'm a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Or one of your family members in grade 5 learning band. And if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all the mysteries and I have all the knowledge and have faith that can move mountains but don't love, I am nothing. If I give all that I possess to the poor and give my body over to hardship that I may boast but don't love, I have nothing. We could say this. If I read my Bible every day, And have a streak longer than anyone in this church. But have not love. I'm not really making a difference. If I go to church every single weekend. Or have the right views about everything. But don't have love. I'm not really making a difference in this world. By the way. You love one another. This is how they will know that you are my disciples. Who we are. We are the body of Christ. You're a daybreak. We're the church of Jesus. We're a light shining into a dark world and we lead with love. We lead with love. To Jesus, it wasn't just about right and wrong. It was about pride and humility because proud people don't love well. Humble people, forgiven people love those who are hurting Love those who are broken and love those who need the grace of Jesus just like I need the grace of Jesus. Listen, if you're right about so much, you're not as right as you think. Because you might be right about your ideas, but you're probably not right in your approach. And Jesus didn't call us to be right. He called us to tell the truth. He told us to tell it in grace. Jesus never said they'll know us by our righteousness, but He said they'll know us by our love. Friends, as you go into your prayer time, as you worship a little bit longer, here's my prayer for you. That God would empower us to be a force of unstoppable love in this world. And and God, while we live in truth and love, and as we seek the truth, may we always speak the truth in love. Empower us, O God. Let me pray. God, if I said anything that wasn't of You, take it from my friends' minds. If You used me in a small way to encourage my friends, make it about the Holy Spirit that prompts, guides, and leads. God, this isn't a finger pointing at my friends who are sitting in front of me. This is me being really honest with my own life. And how over the last little bit, the pursuit of being right has caused me to not love the world the way that you are called to love the world. And so God, forgive me as I work to be Your hands and feet to Jesus. As Paul proclaimed in, in 2 Corinthians, may we be ambassadors to a world that desperately needs it. We love You in Your name. Amen.